0: Welcome, everyone, to a holy mess podcast with me, Father Paul, who is his holy mess. This is a podcast to encourage, entertain, and give hope to those of us who are striving to find holiness in a very messy world. It's also a podcast for those of us who identify as a holy mess, like me, obviously, his holy mess. Are we not at all in some way, because of our weakfulness and our sinfulness, a holy mess? Yet the good news is that God, who is supremely pristine and pure, entered the depths of our mess and the mess of this world and made it holy. And he doesn't just clean up the mess in our lives, but he redeems it, uses it, and turns our mess into a beautiful message of hope. So tune in, bring your mess with you, and join me for a clean but very messy podcast. One, two, three... Welcome, everybody, to a Holy Mess podcast with his Holy Mess Father, Paul Houlis. We welcome you here, and we are grateful that you are watching or listening. If you are brand new to this podcast, do me a favor. Subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this episode. And all episodes can be found uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and many, many more. Also, majority of these episodes are also on my YouTube channel. That's at Father Paul Houlis on YouTube. F-R-P-A-U-L-H-O-U-L-I-S. Father Paul Houlis on YouTube. Google it, subscribe, rate, review, share, all that type of stuff. Listen, in this episode of A Holy Mess With His Holy Mess, I interview Jason Jones. You're going to hear all about him, but I want to say to the people who said... You you might say to yourself, well, I thought that you said that your next episode was going to be about uh, funeral masses and the importance of having a funeral mass. And I did say that, but I just want to be able to do a little bit more research. I don't want to just give you my opinion or my emotions about it. I want to give you the absolute teaching of the church on all things when it comes to funerals, wakes, funeral masses. Burials, cremation, all that type of stuff. I might even do a series on it. So, and I don't want to just do it by myself by looking into a screen like I am right now. I just don't like it, even though I love to hear myself talk. I'd rather have somebody with me. So, we are going to release some episodes on, uh, or one big episode on the, uh, all things funerals, uh, but it might just take just a little bit more time. Okay. So, uh, but in this episode, first of all, I want to let you know I'm breaking this down into two different episodes. I started off talking with Jason Jones about Maui, but I'm going to make that its own episode and I'm going to call it part two because I think Jason and I think that you should listen to this part first because Maui, uh, the episode, it's really important. It's very heavy handed, it's very sad. And it's a completely different feel than the rest of the episode that we did. We did almost a two hour episode. The first 20 to 23 minutes were focused on Maui. And then we got into Jason and his life. And it's just much, it's, it's, it just, it's such a different thing that we're going to make that its own episode. So we recommend that you listen to this episode first and then listen to the episode on hope for Hawaii, hope for Maui. Um, also, uh, I did finally uh, speak to an accountant and to a lawyer uh, to see – what I need to do to take this to the next level in terms of making this podcast legit uh, in terms of like possibly a nonprofit organization, uh, certainly um, so that we can legitimize any, like if anybody gives a donation or whatever. So I'm still looking into that a little bit more and got to, you know, fill out some paperwork and stuff like that. But uh, my lawyer did tell me that people can still donate um, as long as they know that at this moment, it is not a, it won't be able to be a, uh, you know, a tax deductible donation. Uh, so it's not so much a donation as it is a gift and anybody can give a gift, but I don't want to, to do that. I'm just updating you. Uh, we got a lot of new equipment, which the people that have donated, I, it's all because of you and I'm going to do something soon, um, to explain exactly everything that we've got, we've gotten for this podcast. Um, but what I don't want you to give to this podcast in this episode in any which way, shape, or form, because I ask that you please donate to the Vulnerable People Project, that you donate, donate to Hope for Hawaii, specifically in the Hawaii episode. So in this episode, I'm going to leave the links that you could donate to the Vulnerable People Project, which is Jason Jones' organization, and also to Hope for Hawaii, specifically to help the people in Hawaii right now. So Sit back, relax. I hope that you enjoy these episodes. Obviously, the one on Maui is very intense, very sad. Uh, As you're going to hear, Jason Jones is one of the most fascinating people that I've ever met in my entire life. So I hope that his story truly touches you. Very powerful, very fascinating man. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. God bless on a holy mess. Peace in the Middle East. Let's pray for each other. All right, holy messes. Welcome back to another episode of A Holy Mess with his holy mess, Father Paul. I'm extremely excited about this episode. Uh, I was supposed to interview Jason Jones a couple of weeks ago. And listen, the guy is busy. I mean, this guy is really, you know, I don't want to like, you know, uh, be a brown nose or anything like that. But this is one of the most fascinating. You're, what you're about to hear, the, my next guest is one of the most fascinating, fascinating persons that I've ever met. Uh, Jason Jones, just very briefly, he is a film producer, author, activist, popular podcast host, and a human rights worker. He is the president of the Human Rights Education and Relief Organization, HERO, H-E-R-O, known for its two main programs, the Vulnerable People Project and Movie to Movement in 2006, Jones was an executive producer of Bella, which won several film industry awards, most notably the People's Choice Award at the 2006 Toronto International Film Festival. His biography goes on and on. I'm not going to uh, just read it off right now because I'm going to talk to the man, the myth, the legend, Jason Jones. Welcome to a holy mess with his holy mess, Jason.
1: Good. It's a privilege to be here. You're a holy mess. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. To my listeners, I met Jason Jones uh, at the March for Life just this past year, the very first March, uh, post-Roe, since uh, Roe was overturned. Amen. Praise God. And uh, uh, later that night, I was invited. I don't know how I got invited, but I got invited to this dinner, which was unbelievable, amazing. And I happened to sit across from Jason and his his wife and, and just listen to him talk and i had so many questions for him and he told the story and i left that night honestly thinking in my mind i said i that that's one of the most fascinating men that i've ever met in my whole life like your story just the things you told and i know we don't have a lot of time i i I know i've been you know i wanted to focus on on maui right now but i also kind of want to talk about jason jones and you know, because my jaw was on the ground that night. And, um, you know, you said you went to Hawaii at 17. I don't know if you said this in this podcast so far, but at one time, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were an atheist, correct?
1: Yeah, I was an atheist till my late 20s. Okay, so. And I was wild. And this is a small island, so, you know, I can't hide from it. People so,
0: know. People right. talk. So, yeah. I, I mean, how did you go from being like, my understanding is not only were you an atheist, but from what you said, and I hope it's okay to say here on the air, not only were you an atheist, but at one point you wanted to intentionally try to destroy the, the Catholic church. Is that correct?
1: It's true. And it's going exactly according to plan father, <laughs> but what's so interesting. You had a schedule father. Things are looking good.
0: What's yeah. Okay. Okay. That's why you're, you know, you're doing You're running a Catholic apostolate that's saving, yeah. literally saving lives uh, throughout the yeah. world. Um, Not, not, but, but it's so interesting. What was fascinating about your story is that you were an atheist, but you were also very, very pro-life. Yeah. Right. So I don't know where to begin with this, and I don't know how much time you have. But who is Jason Jones, and how did you come from this atheist that wanted to destroy the Catholic Church to now being like uber Catholic and like you know being who you are, producing many great, awesome Catholic human films and we could get into your whole thing as a producer i love movies i love the film industry so i don't know where to start but who are you and how did you get to where you are now
1: okay well thanks for the question father um yeah and 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 thanks for saying i'm a very interesting person my wife says when we go to parties or people ask me questions she says honey don't answer their questions you sound like a liar (laughs) she's like people are gonna leave and go man that guy tells some stories But, um,
0: not just interesting, Jason, one of the most fascinating, and I don't say that lightly, I do not say that lightly.
1: Well, that's, those are, I think those are kind words, you know, I I think in Chinese, they might think that's some kind of insult. So, uh, my wife, my wife's mother-in-law, what do they say? May you live in interesting times is a curse, you know? Well, as you said
0: before, I'm not just saying this about you, but you said it. a guy that looks like you, how'd you end up in Hawaii for most of your life?
1: Well, I, um, so yeah, so to answer your question father they all go together it's really the same thing so when i was when i was um kind of to set the background i even have asked myself how did i end up here you know how did i end up doing what i'm doing and uh because the truth is i'm an introvert um, um i i'm very happy staying in one place I, I love to read and write and my perfect day is when i'm I just see my family and no one else. I love people, but, uh, and I can just wander around, used bookstores and then get a good book and go to a, a, a restaurant and get have red wine and read my book or something. That's the perfect day. So then I asked myself, how did this happen? And I was just sort of swept away. I, I feel like I was kicked in a river and I've just, the river's taking me where it's taking me. When I was, you know, I was raised with no religion my mother had me when she was a young teenager and they actually got me. She married my father, but they were divorced before I was one. So she was 16 or 17 and I was there and I have no, I think maybe twice in my life they were in the same space mm-hmm. that, that I'm, that I can remember okay. third grade in a play and maybe a football game in high school or something. Um, and, but my mom got, Remarried when I was two and then divorced a couple of times. Remarried a couple of times, had some kids. We never went to church. Um, and, uh, you know, my first memory is of my grandfather beating up my grandmother very badly. And my mother had to see this every day. I only remembered seeing once, but it is my first memory. Wow. And, a, and I had a lot of half-brothers and sisters, and I was the oldest. And sort of in the chaos of our childhood with different fathers and um, you can imagine, I just always felt this sort of obsession to protect my siblings. And my daydream, like my literal daydream as a little boy is that I would be a strong man and I would protect my children and my wife and I would have a peaceful home and my children would never know fear or loneliness or insecurity. Like this was my dream when I'm like six. So I would lie in bed and dream about this future where I was this great man. And I knew what my house would look like. It sounds funny. You know, there'd be a refrigerator filled with food, freezer with ice cream sandwiches. There'd be a heavy bag in the, the garage with a bench press. There'd be board games on a coffee table. We'd have board game night and. We'd eat dinner together every night, and um, there'd be no, this kid's going that day for that dad, and this kid's going this day for that dad, and this guy's drunk and yelling, and plates are flying. None of that, you know? That was my daydream. And so I would, but, you know, it manifested itself in some ugly ways, too. I was very violent um, and overprotective. They kind of went together, my siblings or people I cared about. and And sometimes I still struggle with that one. Someone looks here, speaks to my ch- children yeah. uh, inappropriately. I, I still uh, scare myself sometimes. Sure. Uh, but when I was 16, two days before my 17th birthday, my high school girlfriend, whose father was a very prominent Catholic. I think I told you, I don't know if you remember, I told you who her father was and who her father's closest friends were. Cardinal Bernadine was his best friend. Okay. And uh, a lot of listeners right now are going, oh, yeah. I didn't know what that meant, but you
0: Chicago, know. right? Chicago,
1: Chicago. Yeah. And uh very prominent man. So I came from, you know, not that and I would go to their very big home, beautiful home and the big, beautiful intact family with cousins and nieces and uncles. And they would have these beautiful parties and these, um, and, and I, I really looked up to her father, but on two days before my 17th birthday, Uh, she rode her bicycle to my house to tell me she was pregnant. So for both of us, this wasn't a scary thing because unbeknownst to me at the time, I didn't realize she was going through every type of abuse. Um, now as an adult, I could look back at her behavior that she would even be attracted to kind of a Yahoo like me coming from where she came from would have been a should have, you know, to an adult would say, what's going on here? Um, but for both of us it was kind of like we weren't scared and we wanted to figure out how, what we were going to do though and i was a football player and was looking forward to college football but i was proposition 48 because i was a you know a very bad student it was 1980 not 88 the year of the death penalty for smu so these big universities all of a sudden were being very cautious and, and started obeying rules all of a sudden so i was working doing workarounds on how i could you know, working with some schools and how we could get around that, but what is Proposition um, Forty Eight? It, it meant that I, I would lose a year of eligibility.
0: Oh God, okay.
1: So, um, but there were schools that had programs where you go to a community college part time, so you didn't lose eligibility, and then after one year, you could lift with the team and off-season yeah. practice. So we were looking at different, but um, but the moment she was pregnant, I knew. I had a friend who just dropped out of high school and joined the army. And he told me this program where at 17, you can go in the army. Um, so I went to the recruiter's office on my 17th birthday. So I, I said, football season's ending in a couple of weeks. As soon as football season ends, uh, I want to go. I want to go to the army as fast as possible. And um, that's what I did. So at first though, he looked at me, clean cut, letter jacket. You know, he said, you don't qualify. This program's for delinquents. I was like, out of 565 kids in my senior class, I'm last. I had 80 hours of detention last semester, um, and I listed more embarrassing things. He goes, "You qualify. You know your your principal needs to sign this paper, and your mom needs to sign it, and we'll send you to Georgia. You need to pass the GED. They said you won't. We don't think you can pass the Illinois GED, but the Georgia GED is really easy." So,
0: <laughs> oh my
1: gosh, it's a true story.
0: Was this before or after your girlfriend came over and told you that she was pregnant?
1: Oh, this was after. This was how we were going to, you know, this was the plan. Okay. So I was like, I'll join the army. And then she was like, I'll take vitamins and wear baggy sweaters. And then when you get back from basic training, we'll tell our parents. That was the plan. Got it. Yeah. So. When I, I left to basic training, with I didn't have a suitcase, so I had to use my Scooby-Doo pillowcase. My pillowcase was still a Scooby-Doo pillowcase. Awesome. My razor blade, my underwear, my socks, my toothpaste, my toothbrush, and off to Fort Benning, Georgia, I went. While I was in basic training, um, I didn't go to church, and I, I got in some trouble. So on Sundays, when the guys went to church, the other soldiers went to church, I would have to clean pots and pans. I was pots and pans boy. That's what the drill sergeants dubbed me. And one Sunday, um, just two weeks before graduation and coming home, a friend came running in. He was actually an Irish traveler of all things, you know, uh, like Tyson Fury, the heavyweight champion. Oh, right yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Yeah, this t- Irish traveler kid. And um, he came running in and he was on desk duty. And he said, Your girlfriend answered. She called on one of the pay phones and you need to come out here and answer it. I ran. He goes, She's crying. So I ran and answered it. And she was crying like I have never heard a woman cry. Her soul was crying. And she just kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And her father said, I know your secret and your secret's gone. I took Katie to get an abortion. As soon as he said the word abortion, a drill sergeant hung up the phone over my shoulder. I punched him. And then another drill sergeant grabbed me and pulled me into my captain's office. I was crying. Mary Liss, she laughs at me. I cry cry easy. (laughs) But... She was crying. I just started crying and just yelling at my drill sergeant to uh, call the police and my captain, because he pulled me into my captain's office. And my captain looked at me confused. He goes, Private Jones, why? He says, you know, why why should I call the police? I'm like, "My, my girlfriend's father killed my baby. And he goes, what? And then I explained to him what happened. And he said, don't you know that abortion is legal? And so I did not know that abortion was legal. Until I discovered that my child, a a girl, because the abortionist told her it was a girl, was destroyed in a forced third trimester abortion at Chicago Masonic Hospital that her Catholic, Irish Catholic father took her to. So it's really unbelievable. I didn't understand the irony in all of that an Irish Catholic man taking his daughter to a Masonic hospital to have a forced third trimester abortion. And so when people laugh like my pro-life conviction and my anti-catholic sentiment were born at the same time Mm. because I was like this catholic guy because I didn't know any religious people really I'm like this catholic guy who wears faith on his sleeve who's friends with the bishop the cardinal would do this
0: unbelievable
1: I didn't know there was a pro-life movement I didn't know atheism I didn't know republican democrat i knew none of that but i just thought this i just thought this man is evil and and i just and then when i got into college after the army and i'm jumping ahead a little bit but when i went to the newman center i started the pro-life student union as an atheist by that time i knew that catholics should fight abortion and i went you
0: started the pro-life student center student union student union as an okay as an atheist okay
1: yeah well no so as a 17 year old boy i'm like i'm gonna end abortion and I just couldn't imagine that, that this was legal. I just couldn't imagine that killing a child in the womb was legal. I didn't know it was legal. And when I found out it was legal, you, know, you have to know I was last in my class. But I was no dummy. Like I would ditch school. My, my 17-year-old is like, dad, maybe I want to try high school for my senior year. And I explained to him, son, like why would you want to trade freedom to, to be confined like I he doesn't understand mm. he just had a great year as a lifeguard and he's like it's been so much fun working at the river my friends think I should go and, and I said son no whatever that you want to do like with them you can do because we're very like as homeschooling parents we give them the world I kind of homeschooled myself I would ditch school starting in the third grade but by high school I would maybe be there half the time if I'm lucky but I would be at libraries or bookstores or museums or wandering around prairies looking for rabbits or pheasants uh you know or jumping the turn jumping into the you know sneaking out of the train watching movies all day like my mom said i spoiled myself as a kid i would go to hotels i should this is confession i would go to hotels and meet kids in the swimming pool ask them their names and their room numbers then i would order food and say my parents went out on a date and they told me i could order whatever i wanted and i'd be sitting by the pool of a, like a nice hotel in chicago eating a t-bone steak and eating tiramisu so <laughs> What's my penance?
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> so you know, so I, I, I kind of homeschooled myself, um, but I was still also very ignorant of things, and I, I just didn't know that in our, you could destroy a child in the womb, and I wish everyone on earth could see the way that this I'd never been to church a day in my life, and uh, I knew nothing about religion. I didn't know anything about anything. I remember on WGN they would do these Christmas spots. If you know the the Chicago channel, the Cubs station, Mm. they would do these beautiful Christmas spots on the nativity, like these little commercials, these little vignettes and anything I knew about Christianity. As I look back, I learned from the WGN vignettes. I I didn't know much. Um, I didn't see how religion had anything to do with killing babies. It was just that simple to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, so I became a militant atheist. You know, my atheism grew, and then I realized it was my that the
0: end of your relationship with her.
1: Well, so um, it gets. It, we can talk about it, it gets a little. Oh, weird, no, no, you know? I, we don't have to go yeah. there. I'm just curious. curious. About it. We don't have to you go. Know, know, yeah, people ask and I normally don't get time to talk about it. But so when I went to, I came home from basic training. Her parents, they had a big, beautiful home, and they said, "Listen, we're going on a golfing trip." We'll be back in like a week. And I was on leave for a week. You can stay here the whole time. But don't worry. We took care of it. And I don't want to get into what taking care of it means. But you know what I mean. Got it. You can do what you want. But you'll never see her again after this week. And I'm like, you know. Whatever. I love her. You know. he And one time, like an 80s movie, that same day, he brought me into his office. And he had threatened me. He goes, you know, I'm a powerful man. I could. Have you hurt? Da, 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 da. And and I look back and I, I'm so surprised I was really so respectful. But I always kind of, I guess I wanted to be respectful to an adult. And um, I pled my case to, you know, how I cared about her and this and that. And he handed me a check. And he said, you put the amount and I'll sign it. Never call her again. And I ripped up the check, obviously. It sounds like a cheesy 80s movie. Um, I only went on the golf trip. I ended up going to my duty station and about maybe three weeks in, I got a dear John letter. You know, I was a teenage boy and I cried. I listened to air supply (laughs) cure, the cure. (laughs) I listened to the cure and air supply. Um, You know, but teenage boys, and I guess teenage girls, their hearts heal pretty fast, you know? So it, it wasn't much longer that I was finding myself into more mischief and trouble. Yeah. But then it was a year a couple of years later she had gotten a hold of me, and her father sent her off to a boarding school. He made her write that letter and tragically, her mother died within six months of cancer so you know it was it was it was very hard a mother abortion is not a feminist; women are impacted much more dramatically than men so you know i obviously I played a the important part of putting this young woman in this position. And I, and it, my heart breaks that I did that. Yeah. I, I was a young boy and I didn't really understand. I kind of felt like I was doing what I was told to do. I was very pious in that way. I remember as a, maybe 14 years old in a health class, a teacher said, if you're not having sex now, you guys are weird. Like, it's your age, you should be doing this. And I remember I heard that. And I, I felt like, I don't want to be a weirdo. I yeah. guess I'm a weirdo. And let me try not to be a weirdo. Um, But, you know, I obviously, my actions put a young woman in a position that uh, were devastating to her. Now, men are impacted too. We explode, women implode. I would much rather, and I did, I I had five Article 15s in the Army. I think I had three, I think three my first 14, 15 months, five total. These are disciplinary actions. Um, was always getting in trouble, fought for fighting, and I was That's very. Angry. you didn't
0: get kicked out for punching your drill sergeant?
1: You know, it's funny. My I'm still friends with all my chain of command, <laughs> and I, my captain is on my Facebook page. Ironically, our son served together in the army. So, so your son's cool. in the army. He was, yeah. He, oh, he wow. found in Syria, and and his his sergeant was the son of my captain, and we figured it out through Facebook. My captain figured it out. Wow. And I just recently messaged my captain on Facebook and, uh, maybe I can read it to you. Um, but I, I ask myself if I had a different chain of command, um, uh, huh. Strange. I can't read it. If I had a different chain of command, um, I, uh, I can't imagine why well, I thanked him. Maybe he emailed me. It's not in here, but he had thanked me for something I was doing, I guess, in Afghanistan. And I'd said, sir, none of this would be possible if you did your job and kicked me out like you should have.
0: Wow.
1: And uh, not only was I never kicked out, I was always, I was in a cohort unit of like 120 guys. We entered together. I was always the first promoted. I was a pretty good soldier. I always maxed out the PT score. I, I always almost got near perfect or perfect for every weapon system qualification. But
0: how long were you uh, in the Army?
1: Active duty, three years, then a couple of years in the reserves. Okay. But I mean, to um, me, I think
0: you're still a soldier. You're a soldier for the most vulnerable.
1: Yeah. And I love the military. In a way, I thought I could have stayed in there forever because I, I felt that as being a soldier, Fulton Sheen said, being a priest and being a soldier. Are very similar professions. Mm. And, um, and, you know, I feel I was a citizen soldier. I was not a warrior. I did my three years as all, you know, I, I served my country as a citizen, as a citizen soldier. But, you know, the men and women who make a career of it, <clears throat> to me, those are the real warriors, the professional warriors. Yeah. Um, but I'm grateful that I had the privilege of being a soldier and serving in the United States Army. And my chain of command really saved me, informed me. It was my captain that told me to write a 40-year plan when I told him I wanted to end abortion. So I wrote a 40-year plan. He said, start with your goal and work your way back. And I wrote this this plan that I would make movies, that change public opinion, that I would run presidential campaigns and political campaigns, that I would learn to be a good writer and a good speaker. Now, I remember I was a kid who was last in my class. I had dyslexia. I found out later in the Army, I found I had dyslexia. So... Um, but here I am. I'm going to write books. I'm going to make movies. I'm going to run political campaigns. And, um, you know, I still kind of what I do is pretty much on course. I am sticking. I, I stuck to this kind of 40 year plan.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'll say I I don't even know which one of those things we could talk about the, the movies, the um, the, uh, the the books or the, uh, you know, your uh, I can't think of the other thing you just said, but. So, all right. So you're in the army. First of all, why, why, if they kick you out, like, what was it about staying in the army that now, like you said, this is all possible because I stayed because you didn't kick me out. Was it just because you learned about discipline, about perseverance, about, you know, fighting for what's right.
1: You no, know, people always told me I was a loser. You know, my father and teachers, counselors, I was a good athlete, but I was, just kind of a weird kid. And And I was a mixture of like a lot of because I spent a lot of time alone and I was kind of a thoughtful kid, but I was a mixture of like and sometimes like real confidence, but then also like addled with massive insecurities as well. And I think that if they would have kicked me out. I would have just been convinced, okay, they were right. I am a loser. I think Mm -hmm. that would have been it. I think I would have lost all faith in myself. And. It took me maybe 18 months before I had the sergeant, Sergeant Hudson. These are these fun stories I'll tell you. I don't know what I did, but there's this thing called wall-to-wall counseling. Do you know what wall-to-wall counseling is?
0: No. They
1: probably don't do it in the Army anymore, but they call you into the NCO room, and you get counseled wall-to-wall.
0: Got it. Yeah.
1: And so all the NCOs were in there, and they were, were, you're going to get wall-to-wall counseling, Jones, everyone's saying it. So I go in there, and I'm like, let's go. I, you know, I was like, I'm ready. I'll take you all on. So who's first? What's and, NCO? A uh, non-commissioned officer. Got it. So these NCOs, one of them, I didn't like this guy. I won't say his name. So, like, you know, you're ridiculous, Jones. We're trying to help you. Okay. And, uh, you know, you got to go see Sergeant Hudson. He's waiting out back for you. And I was like, oh, I'd have rather fight all of them than Sergeant Hudson. I tell you what, like, they didn't <laughs> scare me sergeant hudson by himself i'm like oh but i i couldn't show that i was scared you know
0: yeah
1: so then um i've never talked about this in the interview ever father
0: well you don't have to if there's anything i love it
1: because i want to honor these men you know so i mean if not for my mark captain ears and sergeant hudson and sergeant tem and others that that saw me for the broken kid that i was i guess i don't know what it was whenever i i tell thank them they go yeah yeah yeah. you're a great soldier but you know they remember you and if they remember you like if my captain remembers me uh i was a problem you know you either like they see a lot of great soldiers if they remember you it's not because you were great um but uh so i go out there and sergeant hudson he's like i'm like you what you want to go let's go sergeant And he's like, sit down, Jones. He's like, I like you, kid. You know, you're crazy. And he said, um, he said, you know why I'm an E6 or E5? I forget what he was, E5 or E6. He was like 18 years in. I go, why is that, Sergeant? He's like, because I was like you. I was an angry young man who was full of himself. And I was on the National, the Army National Rifle Team. And I was stationed with the Honor Guard. And uh, I brought... I got caught coming on base with girls and cocaine and I will never get a security clearance. Um, and so I get to be the best E five or E six. I'm going to be the best soldier I can. He was to me, the model NCO, the model, he was just a good man, strong, firm. He goes, I'm going to, I asked for you in my squad. He's like, this is your last chance. He says, but your shoes uh, your boots better be polished better than mine, and your 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 your, your you know uh, BDU's better be pressed better than mine. Your PT score better be better than mine. Everything you do better be better than mine, or I'm getting you're going to go home. You're getting kicked out. And I just I don't know beyond that even how he treated me. I just remember I wanted to I wanted to. I felt like I'm such a good soldier, a field soldier. I don't have to. In the barracks, I could do what I want, how I want, when I want. Like, I don't care. I was always getting in fights. I mean, I think what sent me into this is I got in a fight in a battalion formation. No, no. I had one time got in a fight in a battalion formation in front of the battalion commander. And the other time, in front of a lieutenant colonel, some guy, I tackled him. Didn't see Lieutenant Colonel's wife there at like a company picnic, the Army, our company. I tackled this guy, started hitting him, knocked over Kool Aid all over Lieutenant Colonel's wife. Oh, can't do his military. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what was this. This was my final straw. Yeah. And then, and then Sergeant Hudson, after that, I was squared away. After that, I wanted my shoes, my boots to be the most polished. I wanted to be in formation before everyone else. I wanted to be respectful to officers. They let me take college classes. I'd actually initially started. I, <laughs> I never said this on an interview. I forged my captain's signature one semester to approve me to take college classes. Okay. You know, 18 year old infantrymen normally aren't allowed to take college classes, you know? And I think I even got him paid for by the company. And there was a, and, um, but then after that, they just kept letting me take college classes. They were like, huh? Why did we approve this? We'll keep approving it. And they kept approving it.
0: They didn't know. They didn't know. Um, Jason, so uh, I, if you want to c- continue, I'm not trying to cut you off there, but um, because this is a, a Catholic podcast, how did you, how did you end up becoming a Catholic? How were you an atheist that wanted to destroy the Catholic church? And how did you end up becoming a Catholic? And not just a nominal Catholic, but a devout practicing Catholic.
1: Yeah, so when the abortion happened, I was an insecure high school dropout. My grandfather told me, was an interesting guy. He was the one I told you was hitting my grandma. He was a mixed bag. You know, he, his mom was married seven times. He just died recently in his late nineties. So imagine if his generation having a mom married seven times, divorced seven times, he had all of his teeth knocked out. He had dentures by the time he was 17. He was the strongest man I ever knew. He was a railroad man because he was, but he was, a, he was, he was, um, uh, he read a lot. He told me, you know, your you're high school dropout, but don't, but I don't want you to make that think you're a loser. He's like, if you read a book every week, one week, a book a week from now until you're 40, when you're around other people, you'll be a different human than them. You'll be different than them. Mm. And so I started that as a 17-year-old. I would throw books in my rucksack on deployments. I laminated Plato's Republic and Machiavelli's The Prince. Wow. I loved Seneca. I started reading all the Stoics, but I really loved Seneca. When the abortion happened, I thought back to two – one – a novella and a short story that really impacted me that I read in eighth grade. I must've had a libertarian teacher in eighth grade, but two books kind of set my hair on fire. Uh, One was called Anthem by Ayn Rand, and the other was Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. And both really present an exalted vision of the human person. Harrison Bergeron especially, um, everyone should read Harrison Bergeron. It's really beautiful. And there's a little short film uh, made by Thor Halverson uh, starring Army Hammer that they made maybe 15 years ago. But um I went back to rec- find Ayn Rand and Kurt Vonnegut and I and I, I read everything Ayn Rand wrote. So I became like this radical Randian objectivist. And I was reading everything under the sun. Even as a kid, even as a high school dropout or even as a you know in junior high I was reading DT Suzuki. I was really into Buddhism because I'd read Herman Hesse's Siddhartha like when I was in seventh grade and then I started reading DT Suzuki and I got really into Zen Buddhism oh my and uh, as a kid I was a weird kid um, but so Ayn Rand obviously was radically atheist as was my my grandfather was a Scientologist believe it or not really yeah and he worked in the railroads and he was um, really anti-Christian he had these lines he would use I'll never kiss another man's ring my mom would always say that, too. So the, These Catholics kick, kiss the bishop's ring like this was the worst offense ever. And um, so, you know, bishops, they, they don't always like you to kiss their ring. But for me, it's Freudian. I get that, ah, come here, ah, we're going to kiss the ring, you know. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, I'm going to yeah. kiss
1: the ring, take that, grandpa, I kiss the bishop's ring. And... Uh, um, <laughs> and as long and, as
0: they don't put the ring in their back pocket.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So, no, that didn't happen. ha. <laughs> I've been, look, I nailed my one thesis onto our bishops, not this. When I was an atheist, I nailed my one bishop, my one thesis to the door of our bishop here in Hawaii. You did? Uh, yeah, because he wouldn't, he wouldn't speak out against um, euthanasia. So I nailed my one thesis, which was you're a coward. Was it? Was it... <laughs> I forget. Yeah. So was I was the,
0: Hawaiian, to... the Hawaiian Martin Luther?
1: Yeah, I was a little radical, little, uh... I told him if he didn't go down and testify, I was nailing my one thesis to his the door of the cathedral and you did i did yeah
0: that's that's awesome so that's so oh my gosh so so i um, was like.
1: a randian right so ayn rand who's an atheist but she had this exalted vision of the human person which i have always seen like i am in love with human beings the way some people you know i don't know i i since i was a kid i would go i would ditch school and i would go to the train station and there was this little hot dog stand and it had hot dogs with with sesame seeds, which I loved. And I would like, I would I would find somehow to get money, usually take money out of my stepfather's wallet. You know, he was a bartender and there would be like, he can always, you know, I could always slip out a couple bucks without him noticing. And I would go to this hot dog stand by this train station. And I would watch the people get off the train. I would love going to intersections as a boy. So I would go to different parts of the city or to suburbs because I had a job starting when I was in third grade passing out flyers for a hair salon. And the owner would take me around to different malls and then he would give me a couple bucks for the arcade till, you know, till he'd say, I'll meet you at this time when you're done, just go to the arcade, here's a couple bucks. And I would go and I would just people watch it, malls all over Chicago or intersections. Then I would sit at the intersection and think, I'd watch the people walk. Then I'd think, wow, who built that, you know, who put the traffic light there? And what were the, you know, what went into making the traffic light and where did that come from? where the trains come from who laid those train tracks and i would just all of a sudden i'd see the whole human family working together to put this intersection involved immigrants over decades or century or more working together to create this street corner with all these people walking back and forth and i would just be in love with human beings and i had it my grandma would get mad at me because when i couldn't go people watch i would look at myself like i would st- look in the mirror at like who is this creature not that I was obsessed with myself like narcissists, yeah. but I was just like looking at who is this thing, this human being? What is yeah. this thing? And my conversion story at National Review is called Finding God in the Mirror. And what I meant by that is I didn't find, obviously, you're looking at me going, You found God in that mirror? Wow, you could find God anywhere. But no, I mean, I found God in his image, which is the human person. And Ayn Rand had this exalted vision of the human person. So it was really providential, and I'm grateful for Ayn Rand. I'm grateful, although her metaphysics and her epistemology and her anthropology is non-existent, and, but really what she saw in human beings, and it was a vision that I think as a little girl, she became more ideological. Her later writing to me became even boring. I never, even as an objectivist, I never understood why people liked uh, Atlas Shrugged. I loved We the Living. I loved her short stories from the 30s. I loved Anthem. I loved Fountain, The Fountainhead as well. Um, but I, I always knew that her anthropology was non-existent. So you talked about how I put down that I wanted to destroy the Catholic Church. In college, I wrote my three goals for life. I'm always journaling. I have a journal around here right now. Where's my journal? So I'm always, you know, everywhere I go, I have this journal. If I can't bring this one, I got my little one. But I'm always journaling. And then in college, I wrote this. I wrote that uh, my three goals in life are to um, end abortion, develop an atheist anthropology that supports the self-evident dignity of the human person without having to re- appeal to revealed religious truths and destroy the Catholic Church. <laughs> these, were my, <laughs> these were my humble goals.
0: Uh-huh, That's uh-huh. all.
1: Um, yeah, weird. But it's interesting. I think that I was never an atheist. I, I was an anti-theist, and I think the hint in that is I wanted to destroy the church. And I think that somewhere in me there was a bitterness that the church wasn't being what I wanted it to be, what it should be. I think somehow I knew that. Then I would have laughed at you and thought that was ridiculous. Um, but why was I so obsessed with the Catholic Church? I'll tell you a funny story. You said it
0: was it with God too. Were you mad at God? Or Jesus, or, it, you know what I mean? I didn't know who
1: Jesus was, I'll mm-hmm. tell you that. I thought Jesus was, when Christians and college campuses, like the InterVarsity group would come by, and I, I had this pro Student Union, we would do radical activism. Like, we were ahead of our time, like real cutting edge, like aggressive things. And they didn't like it. And so one time we were protesting Abortion Providers Appreciation Day. I had all these young women in my club dressed in the most elegant gowns they could find. We made thank you cards that said, thank you. And when you open it up, we had an image of an aborted child on top of a garbage can. Wow. And we had them in front of this hall that was on campus where they were having abortion providers appreciation dinner gala. And so you have all these beautiful young college students. And I was kind of playing on the prejudice of the, the, the rich howlies that were coming to support this, this ridiculous cause. And you see these, pacific islander girls hawaiian girls and these gowns thank you for coming and they would open it up and they'd be startled you know yeah and so i could hear the intervarsity club singing doing something across campus like i could hear lord i hip, lift your name on high i love to see you
0: i'm
1: like oh the protestants i go running guys guys we're doing this anti-abortion event this pro-life event can you guys come and join us and the the, the head of it was like no, you know you, you sh- you shouldn't do that. Like, you know we, we shouldn't judge. And whenever I would hear that, I would say, "Who said that?" And they would say, "Jesus." And I would say, "Well, Jesus should read Aristotle, because if he <laughs> read Aristotle, then he would know that you cannot use a concept to refute a concept. So to tell me I shouldn't judge is to make a judgment. It's the fallacy of a stolen concept. I just thought it was namby-pamby nonsense. When I finally got down to reading the New Testament, I said to a friend of mine who was Baptist, I said, if this isn't true, it's better than... Because by that time, when I finally read the New Testament, I actually started, I read the Quran first, then I read the Jewish scriptures. Then when I finally got to the New Testament, I was so just moved. And I was kind of angry. It's like when you read Plato. Like, why isn't we just... Plato and Shakespeare in the New Testament. How do we make this boring or hide this from young people? Like, really? Are you kidding me? But when I read the New Testament, I was just blown away. Paul's letters? Paul says, don't you know we're going to judge the angels in the world? How much more shall we judge the things of this world? You know, I start reading this. Um, judge not that they should be judged. to Take the plank out of your own eye, then the speck out of your neighbor's. Don't walk around with the plank in your eye because you're slothful and sinful and lazy. So your neighbor has to be out with a speck his whole life. Get the plank out of your eye. You know, um, I just fell in love with Jesus. And I said to my atheist, my, my Baptist friend, because I didn't believe it was true, but I thought it was so beautiful. I said, I wish it were true. Could you imagine a God like this? I said, I, I feel sorry if there is a God that he would have to be compare himself to this. Mm. Cause there's nothing that could be more beautiful than this sort of Trinity. The idea of the Trinity fascinated me. Yeah. The second person of the Trinity would become man and suffer and die for us. Like what more could a human being want? And then my Baptist friend said, but you don't think it's true. I'm like, well, no, it's not true. He says, it sounds like it opened the key to your heart. He's like, if, if a key opened up a lock, Would you look at it and go, yeah, I still don't think it's the real key. Mm. I I thought that was pretty good. That caught my attention. And um, he goes, doesn't it explain the comparable beauty of the human person that you say you're trying to find the source of? And that was what what set me on my way. I have to give Sartre, Nietzsche, and Freud credit as well, because they had sort of dismantled any hope for an atheist anthropology for me. Really? Yeah, that could support this vision of the human person. And I always say that it was Ayn Rand, Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade, Ayn Rand, Sartre, that led me to, to God. So and those order.
0: three, Nietzsche, and they—they they did what? They showed you that they—that there could not be a beautiful vision of of a human of humanity
1: without appealing to Christian revelation.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: That, you know. I had to wrestle with this abyss. We're so blessed that kind of Western philosophy has walked us to the edge of the abyss. Um, Terrence Malick shows this in his movie so well, especially The Tree of Life and To the Wonder. But we sort of like, we're, we've been walked up to this abyss and one has to just collapse into despair and nihilism or ascent to the truth of God, which comes with some, some demands which seem burdensome. But our Lord tells us, but at the end of the day, the yoke is light. Um, It seems burdensome. And obviously me, who was an atheist till my late 20s, um, I've been addled with habits, right? I've been addled with with relationships that I've created, um, wounds that I've inflicted. Not that I was with malice, but through piety. I was just a pious young man. Doing what the, I thought I was a little radical, but at the end of the day I was just very loyal to the gods of the city. I was doing everything they demanded. And we are we have affection to those idols, right? We have attract, those idols can mean a lot to us. And even friendships that we've created in a disordered way um, where we don't know how to love people properly, but we do love them. But it, it, it knits together into quite a mess. And so when you're trying to climb out of that and be a Christian, um, it's not easy. Uh, and I think young people today, millennials, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, they've been addled, um, they've been ambushed by technology. And they're going to have to see that this is the adventure of Eros. Loving each other, loving their neighbor, loving God. It's going to be an adventure. And it was an adventure, and it still is for me. Um, I'm writing, I have an autobiography coming out next year at Sophia Press called On Rocky Soil, the spiritual autobiography of a man you may not meet in heaven.
0: Um, did you say a couple minutes ago that you, was there like an essay or something about yourself, though, that's already published?
1: Oh, at National Review, it's called Finding God in the Mirror.
0: Okay, yeah. got it. okay, all right. And but now just, you have an autobiography coming out next year
1: from Sophia Press called On Rocky Soil, the spiritual autobiography of a man you may not meet in heaven. From a man awesome. may not meet in heaven. because I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I love when my evangelical friends go, You don't think you're going to be in heaven? I go, Goodness, no, I'll be there. I just don't think you'll be there. <laughs> Obviously, that's not what I mean by the title. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, joke it. Joke the it title man. means
1: I recognize that. That I very well may may be, you know. I don't say this lightly. It, it I, I mean, I, I do even tremble at the thought of it that the seed has fallen onto rocky soil. But I think for those of us who recognize that grace builds upon our nature, and that we can dig up those rocks and turn them into stepping stones, mm. I think it's so interesting the way rocks play in Scripture. Right, the stone that the builder refused becomes the head cornerstone. The Peter's the rock. A scandal is a a stumbling block. So how do we turn stumbling blocks into stepping stones? And I think that's through grace and through the sacraments and through looking at those rocks head on and sort of like, I'm like a farmer that went to West Texas in the middle of the 19th century and I gotta somehow find a way to make something grow there. Um, And uh, I'm not gonna complain about the soil But one thing I'm grateful for is I can look at my children and because they were born baptized as infants and raised with the sacraments. They've never missed an evening without a prayer or meals without a prayer in their whole life. I see that their soil is different. And that's what makes me very happy that I can look at my children. One day it struck me and I thought, wow, my children have different soil than I have. And that made me, yeah, I'm very Mm -hmm. grateful.
0: When did you finally come into the Catholic Church? Were you baptized, uh, like an Easter vigil, confirmation, first Eucharist all at once?
1: Yeah, so I came in on October 6th, 2023. What? Picked, I'm, I'm sorry, August 6th, August sixth, was say, that's
0: in the future, brother.
1: I'm sorry, August 6th, 2003.
0: Sorry. Okay, hey, feast of
1: Yeah, I picked, um, Actually, not for that, because I didn't even realize it was the fe- I didn't know that it was the Feast of the transfiguration and I know what that meant really I don't think i I picked it because it was the anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima really, and one of my goals i you know I make small goals is to full legal protection for the child in the womb from the violence of abortion and the complete elimination of strategic nuclear weapons, not tactical nuclear weapons I write on this i Tactical nuclear weapons can be used in a way that's licit. But, um, yeah, so I thought August 6th would be um, a good day. And I – yeah, so that's when I entered the church. And it was after a long time. And, again, it was – I went from – funny, in my 40-year plan – this is too much information. But in my 40-year plan – I'm loving
0: it, man. I could keep going.
1: In my 40-year plan, I wrote that I would fake a conversion to Christianity in my late 20s. I wrote that in my 40-year plan that I wrote as a 19-year-old. And the reason I would fake a conversion, I thought, is, well, when I want to run for office in the future as a politician, and I was going to fake a conversion to becoming Episcopalian, why did I pick Episcopalian? Because most presidents were Episcopalian. So I was thinking, right? And I got studied this. I went to the Encyclopedia Britannica. There was no Google. I say, okay, if I want to become a politician, da-da-da-da-da, okay, where are centers of power? How do I insinuate myself in the centers of power? Um, and so I was looking for all of that. All to end abortion. Machiavelli's The Prince was sort of my Bible. as an 18, 19, 20-year-old kid, pro-lifer. And so I was going to fake a conversion. I thought this was important for many reasons. So I just, you know, it's, it's, express piety to the community i wanted to influence and also i could use that as an excuse for my uh reprobate 20s oh that was before i found jesus i didn't know episcopalians don't talk like that <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you never heard of episcopalians. so there were some loopholes in my plan there were some uh, but when i eventually converted now this is going to be funny when i ascended to the truth of christianity and this is where people listening are like, this guy's nuts. This is where my wife says, don't tell people too much. But whatever, I'm telling you. I assented to the truth of the Christianity and the Catholic Church for probably about a year and a half or so. And this is where I, maybe I'm revealing too much so I sound like a lunatic. But for about a year and a half because I wasn't, I, I just couldn't get myself right, you know what I mean, in many ways. So I just didn't want to be a scandal. I didn't want to embarrass the church. Yeah. So I would have my Magnificat. I would go to mass by myself, sit in a corner and read along with the mass. And I was still telling people I was an atheist, Mm -hmm. not because I was ashamed of God, but because I was ashamed of myself and I didn't want Christians or Catholics to look bad because I said I was one of them. So then I had this idea that I would become good somehow one day and then I'll become Catholic. Well, if, if that was my plan, father, you're right. It would be like next year and the next year would be next year. And then the year after that would be, the... you know, I had this idea.
0: It would never happen.
1: And I didn't understand the sacraments. I didn't understand grace. I thought I had to make myself good. Then when I was good, I could become a Catholic. And this is going to sound absurd to you, Father. This is how God works. The scandal, the sex abuse crisis in the church. I was like, whoa, Maybe my problems could bring some good publicity to the church. Wow, I was like, My problems, yeah, they're not so bad. They'll go, Oh, they they like girls, he likes girls. So it
0: was,
1: (laughs) is this sorry, sorry, forgive me.
0: No, what? No, this is great.
1: So that's when I started doing this intentionally. Now I don't even do it intentionally. Now I'm always trying to pull it down,
0: but I started wearing
1: big scapulars as an atheist, like this. In the 2002, I'd pull it up and people would go, you're Catholic. Only Catholics would know what this means. You're Catholic. I go, oh, yeah, are you? Oh, I was. And I no, they would say, are you Catholic? And I would say, no, but I'm going to be. Yeah. And uh, they go, why, why would you do that? You know, and then I would purposely wear like my scapula like a choker. Now, I don't know why it always comes up. I don't know if I have bad posture, what it is. But it always creeps up on me.
0: It's just that's more...
1: that's the truth. That's I, I, I didn't tell people I was a cat that I believed in God. I didn't tell people that I sent to the truth of the Catholic Church for about a year and a half.
0: But can I, I stop didn't... can I stop you for a second? Yeah, yeah. What? Jason, that really moved that's that's really beautiful to to think about that for a second. You kept telling people that you were an atheist because you were afraid that if you told people that you were a Christian or that you were a Catholic, that that it would look bad because of who you were, because of your imperfections. Mm. And I kind of I mean, I'm not saying like, oh, that, that was so great that you did that. But like there are so many people today that are nominally Catholic and they could care less of how they they live their life or how that looks you know what I'm saying? You had the integrity to think, well, you know what? Like, uh, if I'm going to, I, I going to really do this. So if I'm going to tell people that I am a disciple of Christ and that I belong to his church, like, I want my life to show it. You wanted your life, even though you thought, well, you had to be perfect first, which obviously isn't true. You know, God's grace and his mercy and all that uh, type of stuff. But at least you thought that like you knew that being a disciple meant something that it's supposed to be not just something that you say, but something that's supposed to be lived. And you were afraid to cause scandal because you were imperfect. And I wish that.
1: I'm sorry. Father. Yeah. My fear was that my fear was, and still is actually right. It still is because I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm Rocky soil. I've never actually published my, my conversion to Christianity or to Catholicism. My article in National Review was how Ayn Rand, how Sartre, Ayn Rand, and Roe v. Wade led me to believe in God. I, I've never felt comfortable even telling my conversion story um, in writing. And that's why when Sophia Press asked me to do it, I thought the only way I could do it was to address the scandal, the rocks.
0: Yeah, And then that,
1: that, that because I the last thing I want um the very last thing I want. I would rather shoot somebody in the stomach than do something that would make somebody hate their creator. I I, I that's the last if they would say, Jason, you got a choice, shoot this guy in the stomach or make him hate God. Oh uh, okay, bang. That's easy.
0: Yeah, you're speak you're speaking to my heart, man. I mean, look, obviously. You know, and maybe sometimes I share too much and people are, you know, afraid of vulnerability and all that stuff. But like, you know, priests don't stop becoming human beings when we get ordained. Priests don't stop being men. Priests don't stop having temptations. Now, obviously, people could say, well, yeah, duh. I mean, look at the scandal. But then you have the other side of the spectrum that 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 put priests on such a pedestal that they they don't think, you know, they could possibly even have a bad thought. And what you're, what I'm relating to you is, you know, in my, just in my life, in my, you know, spiritual life, which is a battle, right? Prayer is a battle. In those times when Satan is trying to sift me like we and trying to tempt me, it has been the fact that I never, ever, 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 ever want to cause scandal to the church. I don't ever want anyone to hear about something that i did and say you see you see what's wrong with the church you know what i mean he was a fake you know or you just can't believe in god so i can identify with that very much because you know in those times where you know because we have the priest all people do have a mark on our back by the enemy and you know what When it's not those times where I'm just like, because obviously uh, you would want to avoid sin purely out of love for God, right? That's like perfect contrition, I think, or whatever. But then it's those times where like, you know, whether it's fear of hell or fear of never wanting to cause scandal. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing because we represent not just the collar here, but you, Jason Jones, you said it yourself. And you, you could not have said this any more perfectly as a lay person who is discerning being Catholic, who is just starting to believe in God. You knew that the way your life mattered, if you were going to use the word Christian, if you were going to be baptized and confirmed so that, that thank you for that. that. I mean, I'm glad that you're you know, out now and everybody knows you're, Catholic and everything like that, but I think that I hope that's a beautiful lesson for the listeners on here to uh, to talk about. And um, by the way, I could edit this, but I just want to be respectful of your time. How you doing? Because I'm, I'm loving good. this. I'm but-
1: good. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'm good. I'll let me see if... I'm waiting for Maris to get back. We, uh, we're going to run to pick up some aid. And so, um, you know, this well, is listen, our life. We- like I'll you, I woke up today to an emergency evacuation in Afghanistan, did the Eric Metaxas show, doing your show, um, then we're going to go pick up stuff that we're taking to a, a dock to be delivered to Lahaina by boat. Then, um, then we're going to my son. My 17-year-old son is arriving today. Um, then we're going to go straight from picking him up to uh, another terminal. We're taking an inter-island flight to Lahaina or to, to Maui. And then we'll be staging for tomorrow. We're going to be start doing our deliveries all over the island. So, you know, we'll be del- doing deliveries around Lahaina while we're managing evacuations and food distributions in Afghanistan and we're purchasing a new car for a doctor in uh in Ukraine because her car went kaput and uh she she drives around the battlefield treating people so it's it's chaotic but yeah no we're doing good let me see i think
0: so all right, and maybe we could do a part 2 sometime i know you know yeah. we're, our relationship's going to continue because by the grace of God, I'm grateful that you had at, you've asked me to be a chaplain t- on your pilgrimage uh, to Hawaii in January. Uh, maybe we could do a plug for that uh, at the end here. And I did want to talk a little bit more about Afghanistan. You had Afghanistan. You had mentioned in the beginning about obviously what our current administration did and the president just leaving them there. And uh, my understanding is is that uh, you and all the people at Vulnerable People Project have literally rescued many uh, people from there. Can you speak to that for, for a moment about what you did there? Uh, yeah, we're still doing.
1: Yeah, no. So we began running evacuation operations in Afghanistan um, two years ago this month. And um, really early on, I recognized that a lot of the large organizations were looking at using planes to get people out. I felt that that was not going to happen. And tragically, it didn't for the most part. We built out overland routes um, and we've been running people overland now um, for two years. We have safe houses in neighboring countries and safe houses in Afghanistan. We've distributed 3 million meals to the widows and orphans of our Afghan allies and religious minorities since this Christmas. Um, we help secure girls' schools, deliver school supplies. And so, what started out is me trying to rescue one of my friends. My friend's friend's mother uh, led to rescuing my friend's interpreter, and then my other friend's interpreter, and then some evangelical Christians wanted me to help get a pastor out, and then you know that quickly just kept growing to hope for Afghanistan. Um, the Vulnerable People Project was founded to run influence campaigns to take the plight of communities like the Yazidi in Iraq or the Chaldeans and Assyrian Christians in Iraq or the Nuba in Sudan, and then work with them to lobby Congress to influence the media to you know um find celebrity spokespersons for their causes and it's really grown that's still the heart of what we do um because if you take for example the yazidi in iraq the proto-semitic people um that have lived there since prehistory um they suffered brutal genocide they live in a country iraq that you have shia and sunni muslims you have christians you have a Jewish beautiful thriving Jewish community until recently but now in Iraq you have the Yazidis there and you have Iran you have Baghdad of course the government you have uh, Turkey Saudi Arabia all the Gulf states really Russia China United States all the world has a say about what happens right where you live and your family has lived when our families were still running around northern Europe not sure where they wanted to settle and they've been there and Um, They have no voice. So what the Vulnerable People Project does is we come alongside of them and say, help us be your voice, help us amplify. We can show you how to influence Washington, D.C. We can show you how to insert your needs and concerns and interests into the media. Um, That's really still at the heart of what we do.
0: You know, what I like about you and Vulnerable People Project is that You know, there are a lot of uh, Catholics who talk about how they're pro-life and that they are pro-life. But what that mostly means, unfortunately for many people, is that they're focusing primarily and of course they should primarily focus on, you know, the the child in the womb and because they are the, the most vulnerable. They literally don't have a voice. But what I like about you and when I met you that night in D.C. over dinner is that you truly are pro life in the sense of you are not only focusing on abortion but you are helping people everywhere regardless of what country they're from regardless of the color of their skin regardless of their gender regardless of their religion and regardless of if they're liberal or conservative you know regions or or whatever you want to help the most vulnerable and that, that has inspired me. That has challenged me listening to you or following your, your stuff on Facebook or talking to Marilis about the work that you all do together. Because, yes, I am pro life and I am pro all human life from conception till natural death. But, you know, do I put my money where the, my mouth is when it comes to a lot of other things besides just the child in the womb? So I just want, I want to thank you for that. I'm not necessarily asking you to, to respond to that. but uh, I'd
1: like to respond to that, Father, because I, I have a thought on that. So
0: yeah, yeah, please, please. My work
1: emanates completely out of the pro-life movement, You're 100%. What? Our work it, it is comes out of the pro-life movement. I believe it's a continuation of the work of the pro-life movement. You know, when I was a young eight, 17-year-old boy at Fort Benning, Georgia, I felt helpless, and I was helpless, to protect my child and my girlfriend from the violence of abortion. Um. And I remember just as a young man wanting to harness influence. And that was the heart of what I tried to do. And if you look at my career, whether it's bringing Eduardo Verastigi into the pro-life movement and making movies like Bella, partnering with Justin Bieber's mom and their movie Crescendo, my latest movie that just came out, Divided Hearts of America on Fox Nation, with New England Patriot Benjamin Watson, that's
0: all. That's all very intentional. All no, no, my next question, all about the uh, what is moving the movement because we haven't talked about that.
1: Yeah, it's it's all that's all very intar- intentional to harness the silver screen and to harness celebrity, um, and bring it alongside those hardworking men and women, young people who've been embattled in the pro life movement, have been called every horrible name in the book, and um, oh, there's Marilis. I mean, I'll start to come up. So they've been called every name in the book. One of the things. I love about Marilis is, you know, she does the hard work of the pro-life movement. She does sidewalk counseling. She prays in front of abortion clinics and her, all of her, her what's, what's what I le- what she has left of her free time. And these are the bravest people on earth. I was really intentional when I founded my organization. That I want to take that same spirit, that gumption that the pro-life movement has, that I will stand with the weak when you call me a loser, you call me a racist, you call me every name, in the, a terrorist, every name in the book, I'm still going to stand with the child in the womb. No one, call, you know, a lot of the work I do, people call me great, the hero, blah, blah, blah. You know, when you stand with the child in the womb, you don't get that. And I wanted to take that same, you know, what that is, that special thing that the pro-life movement has. I wanted to pull it to other communities that I felt that were helpless because I feel like we're in this together. But I am glad, you know, that the, there's the pro-life movement needs to do what it does. We need groups that are full stop. 100% committed to defending the child in the womb. Just like we need groups that are full stop, all in, all we do is Afghanistan or all we do is the Christians of Iraq or all we do are the Nuba mountains. And I have partners that do that. Persecution project foundation in Sudan, the Assyrian aid society in, um, in Iraq. So there are these different groups, Afghanistan, it's kind of just us now. <laughs> we wish there were groups we could partner with, but, um, but it is really the pro-life movement that, that, I still see what I do as a pro-life movement. You know, when you stand up to this Chinese, the CCP, uh, to defend our bishops with our free, our bishops campaign or the Uyghur, it comes with quite a bit risks that I don't want to talk about. I think we talked about privately. Um, okay. you know, when you go to Ukraine and, and I've just been battling against Russian propaganda, um, that's sort of penetrated the right. Um, you know, uh, My own friends get mad at me. My writing partner, John Smirak, has a saying, which is, I love the smell of burning bridges in the morning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Like saying that you're doing that?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the smell of it. But that's the deal, right? When you stand, Rene Girard said this, and I I felt this in the pro life movement. and And he said, When you stand with the truly vulnerable, you become as vulnerable as they are. If you find that your work in serving the vulnerable brings you wealth, prestige, and fame, you're not serving them. You're exploiting them because there's no way a lifeguard can swim out and rescue people in, in a violent sea and not put their own life at risk. And so if we're living a, an apostolate of solidarity with the vulnerable people, it, it comes with great risk. And, and so that's it. I always say that with our apostolate and in human rights work, there is – Palm Sunday, where the masses are there, you know, cheering. There's the Last Supper, where all the big shots are sitting together in their little private get together. you want to be a, you want to be there with the the big shots at the Last Supper. I don't want to be there. I don't.
0: You know I want a well-connected be- man. Like oh, how God. did how did.
1: That's by design. I mean, to be honest, that's by design. I
0: mean, I don't know if I. I'm not going to share things that we talked about at the dinner, but I mean, you're producing movies, you know, celebrities. You're, you know, you're you're having meetings with polit. I won't mention names that you could say, but with politicians and you're helping. How how did this all? How how did you get so connected to be able to make such an influence in this way?
1: You know, by design. I mean, to be honest, like when Marilis, I don't know if she shared with you when she came to work for me. I said, your number one job is to make friends with people that can help us get visas. We're not going to get visas the old, you know, by following the book. We're going to get visas by building relationships with people that can help us get these visas. Mm. Um, I, I'd rather you go to Soul Cycle or go out with ladies from the S- State Department and have pho and go to a museum together. That's kind of you know what we do. Um, but you no, know, it is by design. I and mean, we run influence campaigns. What that means is I have to build relationships with people of influence. I was recently talking to a human rights lawyer that I've been building a relationship with. She's very influential. And I had said, I was very blunt with her. I said, I have a rule in life, which is, can somebody help me and my apostle to share the vulnerable? And do I like them? And they have to have both because I'm a very busy man with seven children and grandchildren. And I can't build relationships with people just because I like them or just because they can help me. They have to be able to do both. You know, I have to, so I work to people that I, you know, in the work that we do, we, we, we meet the most fascinating, wonderful people. But, but you don't
0: want to stay there. You're saying you don't care about the celebrity. You just want I'm to. I'm only
1: there and they know it. Like people know that about me. Like I'm there for Good Friday, right? I'm there wherever I go. I just was re- recently having dinner with a young Uyghur activist and I took him to a really kind of fancy dinner like we had in Washington, D.C. And the kid was really uncomfortable and he took me aside and he said, I'm not comfortable being here. I represent you know, the Uyghur, they're an embattled people. And we're in this beautiful restaurant with these fancy people. And I said, when you're here, the Uyghur are here. I said, I said listen, I'm a high school dropout. I was a teen parent. I went to community college in the University of Hawaii. Do you think this was when I was your age was comfortable for me? No, but I recognized that these are the people I need to build relationships with and I'm not using them. I'm very transparent. You know, I'm there for my work. Um, I like them too. But when I'm having dinner with these people, the Uyghur are there. My Afghan allies are there. The child in the womb is there. If I'm there, they are there. And I'm measuring every word to advocate for them. And I'm listening for every opportunity to serve them. And, um, and I had to explain this to this young Uyghur man because he felt guilty and like, how, how, how can we be this here doing this? I'm like, well, where would you rather be? Isn't this the very best? Aren't these people the most important? That's why I have you here for them to know you, build a relationship with you. I want the Uyghur genocide to become personal to them. These are the people you want it to be personal to. And, um, but you know he had survivor's guilt. And that survival survivor's guilt is a real thing. Yeah, you know yeah. when three million of your people are in concentration camps, and you're eating dates wrapped in bacon, in a glamorous, you know, restaurant in New York City. I mean, in Washington D.C. That, that that comes with it. And and I once said to a young Yazidi actor, a young ISIS survivor, a Shirin, she's a wonderful young woman, and you know we brought her to meet. Vice President of the United States, who was Pence at the time, we took her to the UN and and to Congress. And she said, Jason, I'm afraid because of all the publicity that you're giving me when I'm just a humble Yazidi girl. I'm not a big shot. I'm not an important person. I'm just a survivor of ISIS. And she was held by them and abused by them in every way for 18 months. You know, you know what I mean by in every way. She was suffered the worst types of abuse. I said, well, Great. You know, she said, well, my community is going to say that I think I'm a big shot. They're going to say she's got a big head, that she's full of herself, or she's using our tragedy for um, the, 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 the spotlight. I said, well, Sharon, what a great opportunity. Then you get to sacrifice. You get to know that people will gossip about you to serve them. Isn't loving them serving them? in spite of the gossip, if you serve them just because they thought you were a great person, well, that's one thing. But if you serve them in this very important way, knowing that it comes with a social cost, that's true love. Now, of course, I I just gave a speech at Yazidi Survivors Awareness Day um, in Lincoln, Nebraska on August 3rd. And I had told this story to her community with her right there, that Sharon was so afraid of this. And they all like just shook their head, no. And and every time I ask Yazidi about that, what she said to me, they always say, no, we love her. We're so proud of her and who she is and who she's become and how strong of a person she is. But she felt that. So my work, you know, I realized early on when I came to Washington, D.C., nobody's interested in my policy suggestions or my plans. Um, that D.C., like Versailles, is a city of relationships. And that if I want to be... A true advocate for the most vulnerable people in the world, then I need to build relationships with people who can be most useful to them. I'm very happy to say I, I we, we played a very oversized part in the Uyghur getting their genocide designation from the State Department on the very last day of the Trump administration. So yeah, I mean it's 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 my mission to be in those places. Um, it's my mission to build those relationships. And because I never want to be conniving or exploitative, or I have celebrity friends people who I say to them, you know, every time I'm with you, I think of how to manipulate you to get you to speak out on this issue. I say it like this. I said, but, but I don't want to be that guy. So I'm never going to ask you, but no, I'm always ready and willing for you to ask me how you can help, you know? I said to another friend of mine who's a very influential politician, I said to her, you could probably guess who this was. I said, you know, every time we're together, I'm subtly trying to influence you to become pro-life. Every time we're together, I'm, I'm using subtle techniques. I apologize. I'm subtly trying to influence you. And she looks at me. You mean you think you've been subtle? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought I, was, I thought I was subtle. That was me being subtle.
0: That's hysterical.
1: So, yeah. Sorry to talk too much about that. But I no, maybe. no,
0: I'm the one that asked it because I that's also like, you know, had my jaw on the floor of just these and you weren't name dropping for the sake of name dropping, but with the connections and stuff like that, you know, um, and of course, I'm a I'm a I'm a lover of of the, the film industry and movies and we haven't gotten into this at all, just, but you know, the fact that you're a producer and a produce some movies that I've seen and I, and I've had of love. So, um, you know, uh, very briefly, because I, I do want to respect your time, but can you just, what is move me movie to movement? That's another one of your, your ministries, right?
1: Yeah. So movie to movements, a program of hero hero has two main programs, um, vulnerable people, project and movie to movement. We have other programs, for example, in Hawaii, we have a program on Hawaii food security, something that I'm really much concerned about. But movie to movement and vulnerable people are two are two main programs. The mission of Hero is very simple. It's to defend the vulnerable from violence by promoting human dignity and inspiring solidarity. The Vulnerable People Project tries to um, exemplify human dignity by treating people the way they deserve, whether it's Afghan allies or the Uyghur or, or the child in the womb. And, you know, we we try to inspire solidarity through writing and through actions and through influence campaigns. Um, Movie to movement does it using the power of the silver screen. As I said, we try to build influence campaigns or we build relationships with people. that can help us achieve our objectives of our mission, which is very simple to defend the vulnerable from violence by promoting human dignity, inspiring solidarity. Everything we do. If you look at all of my movies, father, Bella, sing a little louder, stoning of Sarai M voiceless um, uh, divided hearts of America, then you just you look at all of them and you say, oh, they all exemplify the dignity of the human person and they all inspire solidarity with the vulnerable. Stoning of Sarayam is the true story of a woman who's stoned to death. Um, stars Jim Caviezel and Academy Award winning actress Sheree Shalu. Crescendo is the true story. Um, it's a short film. It's the true story of a man whose mother was planning on to have an abortion. She didn't. And it changed the course of world history. Um, so all of my films seek, seek to do that. And so that's what Movie to Movement does. We produce our own movies, uh, but then we also come along other films that, that do this and we will help promote them or market them. We used to do a lot more films. You know, we, our, my organization sort of, our role with filmmaking, is it it's comes and goes. You know, we, we had a, a period of a couple of years where we worked on over 100 films. Wow. And, and then I eventually realized that our work with VPP was suffering and um we kind of readjusted and now we're much more we're really picky we may work on only one or two movies a year when it used to be a movie coming out every we had i had to manage a huge staff you know what goes yeah. with managing and and it's it takes just as much effort to market a film as it takes to run an evacuation operation from afghanistan really exactly the same it's very hard work movies are very hard very hard so yeah, I mean the effort the sustained effort to care for Afghanistan and and everything we're doing there would be about the same as if we're marketing, you know, a movie every quarter.
0: Do you think maybe one day you'll make a movie about what happened in Afghanistan and 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 what you guys have done?
1: Um it's funny you should ask that. I don't know if I would want to make that movie although we have a lot of people wanting to make the rights of especially a few of our stories that got a lot of publicity.
0: Mm.
1: So, um we're I told my team that we're not going to even entertain uh, a movie about our work until the last of our SIVs and our safe houses is resettled. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. we have about 170 Afghan SIVs in our safe houses waiting to be resettled.
0: Uh, you, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about this, but you do have a movie coming up, right? That's going to be supposed to be filmed in Hawaii.
1: Yeah, it's a film that I wrote. I actually wanted to do this before COVID. It's a retelling of The Gift of the Magi that beautiful Christmas story, yeah. but it's set in Hawaii, and the, and the, the heroes are two teenagers, uh, young teenagers, um, Micronesian girl and a bo- young boy who are homeless, and um, they dumpster dive, and the boy finds a bike without a seat, and the girl finds a locket without a chain, and they go on this great adventure to try to get a seat For the bike, so it just has a post. So when the kid rides his bike and he hits a bump or whatever, you know, ah, we've all all lost someone. I don't know about you, father, but kids used to steal seats from our bikes a lot, and it'd be very bad, bad, bad,
0: bad. I remember having to, you know, stand the whole time while riding. This kid finds a
1: bike like that in the Mm -hmm. dumpster, and you know, to him, it's the greatest treasure ever. And she finds a locket where she puts a picture of her mother who passed in the locket, and they go on this great adventure to get a seat for the bike and a lock chain for the locket. And it's a short film and it's set in Hawaii during Christmas. And it's called the Magi's gifts and nostalgia shop. And uh, it's the working title. People say it's too long, but it, and then at the end, of course the boy pawns his bike for it, for a, a chain and the girl pawns her locket for a seat. And um, on Christmas morning, they go down to the, um, life-size nativity in our city hall here in Honolulu and they exchange gifts and it flashes back and that's when you see what they did um, Wow! and then they the movie um, ends with them. the movie ends with them walking along this wall called Walls surf spot and he's got the seat under his, like this like he's riding a bike but it's just the seat she's walking holding her chain looking at her mom they walk through the crane through the camera out of shot and then it just sets on Diamond Head and the waves crashing. Then it goes to this store at Magi's Gifts and Nostalgia Shop. And you see the Henry short story open. And you see the bike without a seat and the locket. It says Merry Christmas. Because they would always walk past the store and they would go and say, Hey, auntie, you have one seat for one bike. Auntie, you have one chain for one locket. No. Yeah. And then And then she figures this out. And so one day when they come in alone, she says, I can trade you. I can trade you. Because she named her gift shop Magi's Gifts and nostalgia after, so it'll have the locket, the bike, but it'll also have the ivory comb and the pocket watch that reflects O. Henry's story.
0: Well, hey uh, listeners, even even though he's telling you the whole story, still go see it. Still go see it. He just yeah, that well, was like it.
1: part of the father. I think this is a segue to wrap it up because Marilis is pinging me.
0: Yeah, no, you, know, you and I
1: are going to be in Hawaii together, walking in the footsteps of Saint Mother Marianne Cope and Saint Damien. In the Hawaiian Islands and people who come on our tour, if they so want, on their free time day, will have an an, an opportunity. I'm scheduling pickup shots because we're shooting in December. I'm scheduling my pickup shots. We have to fix things. Inevitably, you always have to pick some things up uh, during those days of our tour. So the people in our tour will have an opportunity to be a movie extra. And I can tell you as someone who's been a movie producer, I can tell you. People are more excited because I'm in a lot of my friends' movies. They always want to put me in their movies. And I think it's because I'm strikingly handsome. And, you know, a lot of actors need words to communicate. I'm so great. They just need to put me in there for three seconds.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's
1: amazing. So you'll get to be an extra. And when I'm an extra in movies, people call me. They're more excited about me being an extra in a movie than if I produce a movie. It is the funniest thing. People love to see
0: They love to see
1: their friends in movies.
0: I've never been on – I've been on, like, a documentary movie set, but I've never been on, like, a movie movie set or whatever. So I'm excited. I, if you ever – you know, uh, that all oh, that's very exciting to me, and I'm, I'm very excited to be the chaplain for this upcoming pilgrimage. Uh, where can people get more information about that if they want to sign How many more – do you not have any idea how many more spots are left? Or and we're
1: halfway there, I asked them, is this – they just put it up, and I said, is this slow? Is this fast? Is this normal? They go, no, this is summer. They said they think that we're going to be sold out really soon. So wow, uh, neither of us have been promoting it. Like I haven't even put the flyers around my parish yet. We haven't been putting them out. So I think it's. I put, gonna it, drop- I put
0: some of it on social media. So if you want to come to go to Hawaii with Jason Jones and and Father Paul Hulis in the footsteps of Saint Damien of Molokai and Saint Marianne Cope, uh, I I'm very excited. I've been to, I've been to Hawaii many times. I'm very very good friends with Bishop Larry Silva there, uh, but I have never um, done a pilgrimage specifically. Usually when I'm there, it's just visiting. But to do this in the, their footsteps. That's something that I'm looking forward to very much, and I feel honored to be uh, a chaplain for that. So, and I'll put the uh, the link to that and the the flyer in the, in the show notes for this episode. Uh, also, we talked about how where people can um, support Maui. Uh, should we also uh, give a link to how that people could support the Vulnerable People Project in general?
1: Sure. Yeah. If you go to our website, thegreatcampaign.org, um, I bought that domain before I was a Catholic. I mean, in the '90s when um, i read the gospel of life by saint john paul the great and he said we need to launch a great campaign to advance human dignity i said oh when i read evangelium vitae it was sort of like even though i wasn't catholic i said this is this is it this is the playbook for the rest of my life so i bought that domain and you know that's what we want to do and i just feel what i call the holy spirit action plan that we met and you get to be our chaplain um, I'm wrapping up.
0: That marrow is knocking. It is. I'm and, so grateful know. for the time that you've given me, Jason. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, man. it's
1: great. And we're about to go to Maui. We're about to go to Maui and Lahaina, so please pray for us. You guys and- are
0: walking the walk. Certainly prayers. Prayers for you 100%. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Thanks for being an example and prayers for the people of Maui, specifically Lahaina. And how amazing is it that the Catholic church is still standing in in Lahaina? Is Eucharist. that Are there is that the only Catholic church in Lahaina by the way?
1: It is. I believe it. I believe it is. I mean, in Lahaina proper for sure.
0: I mean, that's a miracle. That's all of Lahaina is gone, but the Catholic church is standing. I understand the school and the convent were destroyed, but the church itself standing. That's powerful. Beyond powerful. Yeah. Praise be Jesus Christ. Well, Jason Jones, thank you for being a guest on a holy mess. I know I know we'll talk soon, but this means a lot. Uh, I think our, our, our listeners are going to be very touched and I'll put all the links that they could support vulnerable people project and hope for Maui. God bless. Thank you, father. Thank you for joining me for another episode of a holy mess podcast. Please see the show notes in the description for this episode for more details and information about the topic and or the guest, you will find links and resources there to supplement this episode and help you along your messy, but holy journey. Please also like, comment, subscribe, download, rate, review, and share all episodes. I want to thank Mike Mangione for providing me with the podcast theme song, Can You Love Me Falling, from his album Red Winged Blackbird Man. Finally, please note that while me, I, whatever the grammar is, Father Paul Houlis, while I am a priest for the Archdiocese of Newark, a Holy Mess with his Holy Mess podcast is not affiliated with the Archdiocese of Newark in any way, including fundraising efforts. This podcast is purely the personal hobby, product, and evangelization effort of Father Paul Hulis. Please join us again next time for another Holy Mess of an episode. Peace! <laughs> Yeah!